Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Packer. He is the editor at the Financial Brain Trust with Newsmax Finance. He's also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter. He contributes frequently to the Financial Intelligence Report newsletter, and he's the author of two books we'll be talking about, one called The High Income Guide and the other one called The Insider's Dossier. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me here. So I told your current thing. Just give us a little bit of background of your history and, and coming to the position you're in now. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I've always loved the idea of investing, this idea that my money could make money for me. You know, I think a lot of people feel that way. And then you find out you actually have to do stock selection and, and sector analysis. And there's actually a lot of hard work that goes into it, but it's, it's still better than a lot of backbreaking labor and, and, and some other things. And with uh, all the options to invest in today, uh, commodities, real estate, yeah, there's certainly a, plenty of ways to, to build and grow wealth. And Finding the best opportunities is it's a challenge, it's, it's fun, and if you do it right, it's rewarding. So let's kind of start on a broad view of where you see the world economy. We've had uh, this drama in Greece, which has kind of been recently resolved, at least for the short term. We had this dramatic surprise last week with China devaluing its currency. There's all this concern about is the Federal Reserve going to raise interest rates or not. Kind of give me a bit of a broad picture of where you see the world economy and markets right now. Sure. I mean, looking at some of those big headline events, it is pretty ugly out there. Uh, looking at the Chinese stock market, uh, seeing this big, huge sell-off, it almost makes you forget the fact that Chinese stocks more than doubled in the past year leading up to that. And it's giving back some of those gains, but it's not really below kind of where it started out. It's, it's parabolic run-up. Uh, Europe, mean, in the meanwhile, you've got the ECB that started doing some of the things the Fed's been doing in the past few years where they're just getting into the whole quantitative easing programs, that sort of thing. That will help them deal with the Greek crisis. It'll help them deal with Spain and Portugal and some of the other weak countries that still need a lot of help out there. The U.S. markets, it's August. We really shouldn't see some of the big moves we've been seeing. It's supposed to be sort of a, a slower month. So I'm a little concerned as we go into September and October, which are historically some of the weaker months for the stock market. But... Uh, on the one hand, this has been one of the most hated market rallies of all time. There isn't that euphoria that would suggest to get out of the market like you had with the housing uh, run-up or with the, the tech run-up in 2000. So I'm sort of a little bit kind of agnostic. I'm waiting to see, uh, as you mentioned, possibly what the Fed's going to be doing, um, just to sort of see where, where things go from there. So what do you think the Fed should be doing? I mean, on one hand, the unemployment numbers have been pretty good. On the other hand, commodities very weak. Uh, around the world, things are weakening in China and Asia and other places. Their currencies are falling. So on balance, does it make sense for them to raise interest rates or not? Uh, it really doesn't, especially when you look at what Europe's been doing with its quantitative easing. China intervened last week. They started to devalue the yuan. That's good for them to try to prop up the, the exports. They have a very export-heavy driven economy that they need to continue to maintain. But it's making the U.S. dollar stronger, and that makes the U.S., uh, U.S. multinational companies a lot less competitive abroad. That's going to weigh on earnings. You've got the strong dollar partially weighing on commodities and just also kind of a lack of underlying demand, which is also yeah, hitting things pretty hard. You've talked a little bit about jobs. While the headline numbers look good, most of the newly created jobs have been in part-time. They've been retail jobs. They've been bartending jobs. We're not really seeing 
even a few years ago with the shale boom, the high paying six figure jobs in the oil patch, that's where we're getting a fair number of layoffs now as, as oil prices continue to remain low. So based just sort of on, on where the jobs are being created and, and sort of the quality of those jobs, uh, I think for the Fed to raise rates would be a little uh, kind of, you know, salt in the wound at this point. So what would happen if the Fed did raise rates? What would be the impact on the markets if they did so? Well, I think the market is is still pricing in some kind of a Fed rate hike, but I think because rates have been left so long, uh, so low for so long, what are they going to do? A quarter point, maybe a half point, and then at some point they're going to have to say, okay, based on the data, because we're data dependent, we're going to have to go back and we're going to just lower rates again to zero, or we're going to go back to the the Kiwi uh, roadmap and see if that that kind of helps us out there. So let's talk about commodities a little bit, because we've had dramatic declines, oil down to 41 or so, uh, grains, coal, all kinds of things dropping pretty sharply here on concern of a slowing economy in, in China, which has been the big demand driver for these things. From where we are now, what do you see happening to commodities going forward? Uh, for the moment, I think we're going to continue to sort of be in this mess. One of the big stories on the commodity front in the past few years was the idea that China would start stockpiling a commodity, its price would go up, they would, they would stop that for a while, the price would come back down, they would essentially be buying these dips. We haven't seen it this time. It looks like they've been using their money to help prop up their stock market or at least stop the decline from being as severe as it could be. So we're definitely in kind of for an interesting, uh, you know, kind of push and pull as this plays out. For some of the other commodities like gold, the fact that it really hasn't risen a lot given the devaluation going on in China with the ECB uh, just goes to show, I think, some, some fundamental weakness out there and, and possibly, you know, some gold bugs who have been holding out, uh, watching gold just continue to, to get hammered uh, over the past few months and, and even years, just sort of given up there. So would you basically not buy any commodities or commodity-related stocks right now? Um. Not necessarily. Like I always recommend buying physical gold. It makes a good form of insurance. It's something that you want to just be able to have. It's tangible wealth. It's portable. It does hold its value pretty well over time with inflation, and it's about 40% off the highs. The gold mining stocks, I wouldn't necessarily want to touch until we start seeing a sustained upswing in gold's price, which should benefit them. Until then, that's a bit of a mess. On the oil front, I like the major integrated oil companies. You've got uh, Chevron, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips. These guys have a great long-term track record. And because the valuation never really gets extreme on the major integrated companies on the way up during a commodity boom, uh, they're usually a pretty good place to invest in while the commodities still going bust. So that's a great place to be in, especially for long-term oriented investors. Just compounding and reinvesting the dividends, these oil companies tend to be some of the best performers over time after the tobacco companies and some of the pharma companies. And so overall in the stock market, the U.S. stock market, we've had an enormous rise from the March 2009 lows. Uh, is, is the market toppy here or has it got a lot further to go? What, what is your view on the U.S. stock market right now? Well, conventional valuation metrics put us a little above average, not necessarily in terms of earnings or price to sales or price to book where we would be in, in the bubble territory. And there really isn't that market sentiment of, oh, yeah, I've got to buy now before this, this buys higher. Again, this has been a very hated market rally. A lot of people said, well, it's the Fed's low interest rates to, to prop this up that have been driving this. And a lot of people have stayed out of this market. So... On the one hand, there is some room to run. Valuations aren't necessarily extreme, but they're above average. And what we've been seeing really the past year and a half is a lot of individual sectors 
have come down. They've had their own sort of mini corrections, like utilities corrected early last year. Then energy prices started correcting last year. We're retesting the lows right now. The media companies just in the past few weeks on a slate of bad earnings have taken a, a pretty big hit. So we've seen a little bit of a rolling correction here, uh, which could continue to play out where we could see the markets uh, not necessarily go too much higher, but they wouldn't necessarily have that full 10% pullback we'd like to see where we, we call it an official correction. And then how about on the bond side? Uh, interest rates are very low at the Treasury, 10-year Treasury, roughly 2% or so, a little bit more than that. Uh, interest rates have been staying low for a very long time. Right. Is, is there value in the bond market now with bond prices at all, almost record highs? I think there's some value. I wouldn't necessarily invest in uh, some of the, the government uh, treasuries, you know, your 10-year, your 30-year. Uh, you've really got to expect, uh, you know, the Fed to either, you know, go back to QE or you know, something else to happen where you don't necessarily lose a lot of money on that. For tax purposes, if you're in a high bracket municipal bonds, as long as it's not a basket case like Detroit or Puerto Rico, you're going you're gonna to do fine there. Uh, get a pretty good after-tax yield on that. Uh, a lot of the corporate bonds uh, are in pretty good shape. In the high-yield space, I would avoid anything related to the energy sector. I think those those areas are going to play out uh, pretty poorly in the next few months, especially if oil prices uh, continue to stay in this low 40 range. Uh, so in the case of the two you mentioned, Puerto Rico and Greece, is, is that going to have a wider impact in, in the case of Puerto Rico and the municipal bond market in Greece as far as international bonds? I don't necessarily think so. I think most of the municipal bond funds or some of the bond funds that have been invested in there have taken profits, gotten out. It's not going to weigh too hugely for the average investor going into a, a muni bond fund or anything of that nature. Could it play out even further? Uh, perhaps. I mean, uh, Puerto Rico is, is a little unique in the sense that as a U.S. protectorate, it really can't get the kind of bankruptcy protection that a city like Detroit could, the, the municipal-type bankruptcy package. So that could be a little interesting to play out. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if there was something uh, done at the congressional level or you know, if the central bank, the Fed, decided to, to buy up some of their debt just to kind of help uh, ease the path there. But for the average investor... Uh, as long as you, you weren't in it already, it's going to be pretty difficult to, to get into that now without directly buying those bonds. Before we go to a break, just tell people briefly about the newsletter you write for, the Financial Brain Trust with Newsmax. What kind of uh, material is in there and who is that appropriate for? Sure. What we're looking to do in the Brain Trust is invest in the best of breed sectors for the long term. We're looking to invest a little bit more in the short term, say one to three years, uh, with individual sectors or countries that have, have sold off and look like they're above average investment opportunities now. And then also we like to use options trades, both selling covered calls on positions that have gone up and selling put options in the hope of buying quality companies on the cheap, uh, especially if they've been facing some bad short term news. So it's really just looking for, for quality, no matter where it is, and having a little bit of diversification in terms of how we go finding it and in terms of the time frame involved. And the website for that is fbtalliance.com, correct? Correct. And then just tell me briefly about Insider Hotline. What, what is going on in that newsletter? Sure. In Insider Hotline, I go through all the uh, Form 4s that are filed with the SEC by corporate insiders, uh, just tracking uh, when they're buying shares of their own companies on the open market. 
what we're just looking to do is take advantage of the fact that historically, over time, if you buy a basket of companies where insiders have been bullish and have been putting their own money to work, not stock options or anything like that, just taking their own money and, and adding to their stake in the company, uh, within about a year, you tend to see above average gains uh, that tend to beat the market by about 4 to 5%. And we're going to get into that in more detail, talking about your book, The Insider's Dossier. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andrew Packer. Uh, he is the editor of Financial Brain Trust with Newsmax Finance. And the website, again, is fbtalliance.com. He's also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter, a contributor to Financial Intelligence Report newsletter, and two books, High Income Guide and the Insider's Dossier, we'll be talking about after the break. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Packer. He is the editor of the Financial Brain Trust newsletter with Newsmax Finance. Also, the Insider Hotline newsletter. You can find out about that at fbtalliance.com. Uh, and he's done a book we're going to talk about now called The High Income Guide, Discover the Secret, the Powerful Secrets to Achieving Superior Returns. Uh, this is published by uh, Humanix Books, and their website is humanixbooks.com. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So at the beginning of your book, you talk about the stealth tax that takes the biggest bite of all. 
and, and what is that and how can income investing uh, help you combat against that tax? Well, that's inflation, and it almost seems like yeah, an antique, uh, antiquated sort of idea right now because inflation has been very low. Uh, in terms of uh, CPI, we really haven't seen too much. We've had falling gas prices for almost a year now. Uh, the only place where a lot of people have really seen consistent inflation is with food prices, uh, given like egg shortages and things like that. But over time, inflation just continues to eat away at your purchasing power. And it's essentially like a tax, except you ne- don't necessarily know how hard its impact is going to be in advance. Well, so there is the possibility now of deflation, though. I mean, as we said, commodity prices, oil and others are falling pretty sharply. So are the strategies you talk about in this book just as good for deflation as they are if there's inflation? Uh, I don't know if they're necessarily as good, but they are designed at generating a lot of cash. And generating cash is one of the places you want to be in, in deflation. Ideally, you'd just be entirely in cash because as prices continue to come down, that purchasing power is going to increase just from having the, the same pile of cash. So. Now, you have a chapter called Bankers, Can You Spare a McMansion? So uh, this is about the real estate market where we had a huge shadow inventory, but that's been cut down to some extent. What is your view on investing in real estate in the current market? I think it's going to be a pretty good time to invest in real estate. I think with interest rates where they are now, whether you expect significant rate hikes or not, it's it's going to be very difficult to get a much lower mortgage. Uh, I just refinanced last year. I got like a you know, four percent interest rate. I managed to get rid of my PMI. Really helped, you know, my cash flow, which I can, you know, then in turn sort of reinvest in the market or make additional principal payments. But for most people, uh, this is going to be a, a pretty good time for that. We haven't really seen huge signs of uh, the housing bubble necessarily being a trouble. There are some hot spots where the cash flows really don't make sense to invest. Places like Washington, D.C., the Bay Area, San Francisco particularly, and and Miami where there's been a lot of foreign buying. Uh, If you avoid some of those higher priced areas, uh, you could probably buy a property still, get a great uh, mortgage interest rate, and potentially even rent it out and, and still make a few hundred bucks every month. So that's physical real estate. How about real estate uh, investments like as a real estate investment trusts or uh, home building stocks or things like that that kind of play off of real estate? Right. Uh, I like the real estate investment trusts. The REIT's better. It's just going to offer you a higher uh, yield. You're going to get better cash flows out of that. Uh, more importantly, some of these guys even pay monthly dividends. Uh, if you're in the need of immediate income and you need that, that monthly payment to you know pay your phone bill, internet, whatever – you're going to have that option available to you rather than the 90-day payout that, that most stocks offer. Uh, looking at the home builders, um, yeah, we are still dealing with some of that inventory. I mean, it's been long enough that we're almost through that, but not really seeing sort of the signs of economic growth that would lead to a huge surge in home building like we had you know, 10 years ago, which proved to be more of a bubble than anything else. Can you name one or two REITs that pay monthly that you would like? Uh, Realty Income, uh, ticker O, is sort of the best in breed. Um, it just uh, invests in a lot of uh, little commercial properties, uh, pays monthly dividends. They have a pretty good history of, of incrementally raising the dividend, sort of these fractions of, of a penny per, per share. But they do a good job of, of continuing to increase that over time. The conventional valuation is a little bit expensive, but a lot of the REITs have been under pressure with fears of rising interest rates this year. So it's an okay place to be. It's not maybe necessarily as good as it could be if we actually do get a surprise rate hike higher than expected later in the year. You have a chapter called One Nation Under Massive Debt with Spending and Entitlements for All. Sounds very patriotic. But what is the long-term impact of the rising national debt 
uh, at, on investments particularly. Well, one of the interesting things about the national debt is we're actually not paying that much more than we were 10, 15 years ago, even though we've added trillions of dollars. Part of that is because interest rates have come down, and part of that is because the debt's being financed with shorter and shorter term maturity bills and bonds. So if interest rates do go up substantially, that could become a, a huge problem for the government. And I think ultimately there will be a lot of political pressure, uh, both from Congress and you know, on the part of the Fed, to keep interest rates a lot lower than they would be otherwise to help accommodate the size and, and scope of that debt level. And then you have a chapter about social insecurity, as you call it. Um, I mean, there's about 10,000 people a day turning 65 and starting to collect Social Security uh, and Medicare. What is your outlook on uh, Social Security and Medicare and what's going to be done to make it better? Well, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I, I don't know if I'm going to be getting a meaningful return on Social Security, if at all. Uh, I know for a lot of people who are retiring now, uh, it's substituting what was supposed to be maybe a bigger and more lavish retirement or other income needs. Uh, I think ultimately there's going to be a lot of pressure to try to maintain Social Security. It might involve a combination of tax hikes and delaying retirement. One of the interesting things with the Social Security program is we really haven't changed this idea of retirement at age 65, even though when the program came out in the 1930s, the average life expectancy was 62. So most of the people who would have qualified for Social Security initially had already passed away. Today, you would need to raise the, the retirement age uh, into the high 70s to accommodate kind of that, that same level of, of support between the number of retirees and the number of working class. And that's probably going to be a bit extreme, but we might see it gradually getting raised uh, a little higher than, than even what we have now with 68, uh, 70, somewhere in there. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, it's a bit of a mess, and I think there are going to be a lot of contentious political debates in the years ahead as we try, try to you know, sort of work our way through the problem of the baby boomers retiring and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, everyone's sort of maybe not necessarily happy with the outcome, but at least, uh, you know, not, not going at each other's throats over it. So raising retirement age is one thing, but how about raising uh, the limit on taxes or potentially means testing it or other more uh, fundamental changes? Do you think any of those things might happen? Uh, I've heard about means testing. Uh, the idea of means testing makes sense since it is supposed to be about alleviating and you know reducing the need of, of poverty while while in your you know older years where you're not necessarily able to to take on as much work. Um, a lot of these, you know, I think everything should be on the table when it comes to social security reform and, and making sure that the program uh, you know continues to remain solvent and, and take care of those it needs to take care of. But uh, it's going to be a big challenge with the baby boomers and. Some estimates have the trust fund running out of money in 2029 or possibly even earlier. Uh, we're going to probably continue to take on a fair amount of debt to try to sustain that. And as long as interest rates stay you know, lower for longer, then we'll probably be able to muddle through. So politically, as more and more baby boomers turn 65 and become part of the voting bloc that's in favor of receiving Social Security, how can anything change to, to do the things you talked about, raise the retirement age, do means testing, raise more taxes when they become a bigger and bigger part of the political voting bloc? Well, even Social Security pales in comparison to, to what we are spending and what we will be spending on Medicare, Medicaid, now the Affordable Care Act. Uh, a lot of these programs are, are also going to be, be a big problem, too. So it is going to be uh, 
that old uh, saying, may you live in interesting times. Uh, it's definitely going to be a, a tough challenge to work through. And, and I think we'll end up kind of having a, a solution where nobody's really happy with it. But then when you think about how, how bad it could be for, you know, me as a potential retiree or me as a taxpayer, you're going to be able to say, okay, I can live with this. So in this environment we just talked about with high debt, uh, Social Security and so on, you say that income is the biggest factor in investment success. Why is investing for income better uh, than investing for growth uh, for most people? Well, when you're investing for income, I mean, depending on whether you're investing in bonds or whether you're investing in stocks, I mean, you're just looking to, to get that cash payout. And the cash gives you choices. You can reinvest in that, that same security. You can invest it in different securities. You can leave the cash there for a rainy day. You can take the cash to pay for your current expenses. Those are a lot of things you can't necessarily do while you're buying and holding a growth stock, waiting for it to, to go up a lot so you can sell it. So uh, you have a chapter on uh, some dividend giants, as you call them, for safe income. So let's go through those briefly and why you would like them. Uh, the first one is Johnson & Johnson, which the stock hasn't done that much lately. What, why do you like it as an income investment? Right. I mean, they're just one of the, the industry leaders, um, just kind of in this, this sort of space that they're in. They do a good job of, of raising the dividend every year. They've got a very good track record on that. So, I, I mean, it's just one of those companies that you can just sort of own for the long term. You can buy it. You can just sleep well at night. You don't have to worry too much about, are they still going to be in business tomorrow? Is the price of, you know, Band-Aids, is that going to drop 40% overnight or within the space of a few months the same way that, that oil prices have? You, there's really a lot of, uh, you know, kind of fear that you don't have to worry about investing in a company like Johnson & Johnson. If you don't need the money, what is the advantage of dividend reinvesting as opposed to taking it and investing it elsewhere? Well, if you're reinvesting in the same stock, you can essentially compound that. So now instead of owning 100 shares, paying a dollar, getting a 3% yield, something like that, then the next year you have 103 shares that are paying the same amount or maybe a little more if the company has a history of increasing the dividend. So over time, you're getting more shares. Each individual share is ideally paying a, a higher dividend per share over time. So you'll reach a point where your yield on cost, uh, which is kind of one of the, the best concepts in income investing, where that gets to a point where you're getting not necessarily a 3% current yield, but you're getting 15, 20, 30, 40, 50% of your original investment capital back just in the dividends every year. Just and getting that's that a, compounding working for you. Exactly. Yeah. That's yes. the power of compounding. And that's what you want to have on your side working for you. And your second pick is Walmart stores, which again has not done much as a stock for a long time. It's got a lot of competition from Amazon and all kinds of other places. Why is that a company you favor? Right. They had a, a pretty big run-up earlier in the year, and they, they've given some of that back. So I, I like the space that they're in now. Uh, this is just a very defensive play. Walmart was only one of two Dow stocks that did well in 2008 and ended the year up. The other was McDonald's. But they've done a good job with the dividend. They're doing a good job uh, buying back large numbers of shares. And unlike a lot of companies buying back shares right now, they're not buying them back uh, at the highs, they're just buying them back sort of a little more strategically. So I, I like to see that in a share buyback program. And then a company you like in the high-tech space is Cisco Systems. Again, a stock that hasn't done much for a very long time. Uh, you don't think of that normally as a dividend play, but why do you like that one? Well, Cisco and then some of the other tech companies, the, the, the big tech space like your Intels and Microsofts, 
been in, in that same sort of, well, they're not really you know, thought of as doing much right now. And when it comes to technology, the market is very much, what's your story? What's exciting about you? These guys don't do anything exciting. They're boring, but they, they serve that almost sort of utility, bricks and mortar space of building out the internet. And over the past few years, they've started dividends. They've started growing them pretty rapidly. And based on their cash flows, they've, they've got more room to continue paying out uh, solid dividends in the future. And the final talk company to talk about is Altria Group, which is uh, the old Philip Morris. Right. Uh, that's about probably one of the most hated companies around there. Why do you like that one? Well, precisely because it is hated, you've got a pretty good valuation there. And not only that, you've got a very high dividend. The higher the dividend yield is, the better compounding is going to work for you over time. So even if the share price doesn't go anywhere, even if the share price even, you know, starts declining, you're going to continue to, to reinvest money there at a higher and higher rate. And over time, if you look at uh, the book Stocks for the, the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel, uh, it points out that you know these unloved tobacco companies have had the best returns over time when you compound the returns as a result of the fact that they're just hated and usually pretty well valued as a result. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andrew Packer. Uh, he is the editor of the Financial Brain Trust with Newsmax Finance. Website for that is fbtalliance.com. He's also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter. We're going to talk about insiders in the next segment. He's also contributed to the Financial Intelligence Report newsletter. And you can find out more about him at the website for his books, which is uh, humanicsbooks.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Packer. Uh, He is the editor of the Financial Brain Trust newsletter with Newsmax Finance, also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter. You can find out more about Financial Brain Trust at fbtalliance.com. He also is the author of a book called The High Income Guide we're talking about a little bit. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So you have a chapter on what you call Building Wealth the Rockefeller Way Using the Corporate Structure that Pipelines Use. What are you referring to here? Right. I'm referring to Master Limited Partnerships, MLPs, and that's just uh, the fact that the pipeline companies operate essentially like a toll booth for the energy sector. They're able to transfer and, and ship uh, you know, oil, natural gas, uh, other commodities, uh, wherever they're needed from uh, wherever they're dug out of the ground. And what is the tax advantage of an MLP? Well, the tax advantage is that it's, it's pass-through income for you. If you invest in an MLP, you get uh, what's known as a K-1 form uh, with your taxes every year that you have to fill out. So any of the company's uh, depreciation, amortization, uh, as a member of the partnership, uh, whatever stake in the company you own, you get to, to write that off on your own personal tax return. So why don't you just give us two examples from the book of uh, particular MLPs you like now? Well, I think the problem with the MLP space is that it looks like they're starting to, to voluntarily sort of fold themselves up. Uh, my favorite play in the area is Kinder Morgan, ticker KMI, but last year they decided they were going to get rid of their you know, multiple public holding company structures, including the MLP, and roll everything into, into their main C-Corp, which is KMI. Uh, I think they have the best pipeline uh, network in the, uh, in the area, and in North America, and it's definitely a good spot to be in. Uh, they've had a little bit of a sell-off uh, now with oil prices coming back down, but last year while they were doing the roll-up and merging everything into one C-Corp, they actually held up very well while everything else in the oil sector was imploding. So why are these companies which have all these tax advantages as MLPs giving that up and going to C-Corps? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of analyst coverage that's negative, and I think part of the challenge with the MLPs is that they're very hard to, to understand and differentiate sort of the tax advantages of splitting out, you know, the actual pipeline assets as a company versus the management as a company. And even when Kinder Morgan was multiple uh, companies, they faced the same criticism because, you know, how do we know the management company is acting in the best interests of the pipeline shareholders and, you know, partnership holders? You don't necessarily have that. So by having it all in one company, uh, I think there's a lot more clarity to that. It eliminates a lot of the confusion, uh, especially in terms of the depreciation and amortization expenses that uh, have had some people kind of concerned. So uh, they typically operate based on the price of transporting oil and gas, not the price of oil and gas itself. But with oil prices down, is the fear that there's going to be less transportation, of less kind of throughput? through the pipelines because uh, people are going to be pumping less. Is that a a pressure on the MLPs? Well, so far we've seen uh, actually a fair number of companies pumping more. They're just trying to get sort of cash now to to pay their debts, especially in the the shale industry where there was a lot of junk bonds issued and other uh, high yield debt to to invest in in areas where it made economic sense at, you know, $80, $90 a barrel for oil, but it really doesn't at, at 42 
So, so far, we haven't really seen that challenge. I think looking forward, we might see a bit of a volume drop-off. But another advantage that, like, a Kinder Morgan has is they're also in the business of, of storing energy. So anyone who's just looking to wait for an upswing in oil prices before they sell, they're going to need storage tanks to, to place that in. Another area you talk about is preferred stocks, both preferred individual stocks and ETFs and ways of doing that. What are the advantages of preferreds in this environment? Uh, I actually like preferreds better than bonds at this point. Uh, to some extent, you can get a, a better after-tax yield investing in a lot of these companies. A lot of the bank stocks offer preferred, so you can get 5 to 6% yields in like a Bank of America or a Goldman Sachs, uh, which you just can't get just buying the common shares. Uh, when Warren Buffett was making his investment in Goldman Sachs, he got preferreds with a 10% yield, but you know Goldman Sachs also got Warren Buffett's name attached to that, so there was a good value on both sides there. But the, really, the most interesting thing about preferreds is that they have these bond-like characteristics, but you can also find a lot of preferred shares that are trading below their par value right now. So if you just buy and hold these preferreds, if they get called away at par, you're not only going to get a, a pretty solid dividend yield there, you're also going to be looking at getting some capital gains as well. Are there some funds that do preferreds that you would prefer instead of individual issues? Uh, there's a little bit of both. I mean, there's PFF, that's the uh, preferred fund. Uh, that's one that we have uh, in the Brain Trust newsletter. We've also bought some individual preferred names over the years. Uh, there's one, uh, the SunTrust preferred A shares that we have uh, and have had in our portfolio for a little over a year now. I think that's just going to continue to crank along. And uh, these are areas where the preferreds have a par value of $25 a share, and we're looking to buy around 20 to 21. So we've got a pretty good upside. Uh, if we get it. And some of these institutions have called in their preferreds and some of their preferred series. So it uh, wouldn't surprise me if you know, we got closed out within the next few years. But if we just keep holding, we're going to get you know, an excellent yield and we've got some upside potential. If interest rates would arise, would that hurt the preferreds? It possibly could. Uh, however, the fact that we're already buying below par, I feel, gives us a margin of safety to deal with whatever short-term issues the market throws our way. And with a lot of signs out there for deflationary issues, buying a preferred or buying any bond at a 20% discount to par is, is a lot better than, than paying par value or even over par value, which a lot of corporate bonds are, are currently going for. Now, another alternative for high income are covered call mutual funds. This is where they're selling calls on their existing portfolio. What is the advantage of a covered call mutual fund, and what kind of yields can people expect from them? Right. The more I've looked at these covered call funds, which are just looking to own an existing portfolio of stocks and, and regularly sell covered calls on, is that in this environment, there really hasn't been a, a huge amount of option premium. Overall market volatility hasn't been huge, despite the occasional flare-up. It's been well below the historical average. So I'm not as big a fan of the, uh, the actual, you know, covered call funds as I am, just on if you own an individual stock, if it's been up a lot, if you think it's going to trade sideways, but you don't necessarily want to sell, you should look at doing that in your own portfolio and sell covered calls against your position. What kind of yields can you get, though, on these funds these days, the covered call funds? Uh, ideally, you'd be looking for about um, a little under 1% a month. Uh, maybe in better times, you'd probably be able to get 1% a month. And even then, you have to get pretty aggressive and sell a lot of options at the money. So in a rising market, it can work against you a little bit in the sense that you're going to end up selling these covered calls, you're going to get called away, and then you're going to have a lot of cash while the market keeps going up. So then you have to redeploy the cash. So uh, for some of these funds, yeah, it works best when the market's sort of having these sideways trades. Uh, and if you look at uh, the market year-to-date, it's up about 3%. So 
you know, any of these funds that uh, have managed to not get too much called away are probably in pretty good shape. Another area you like are what are called business development companies or BDCs. How do those work and what would be one or two of your favorites there? Right. Uh, business development companies essentially looking to lend to companies sort of in this market where they're too small to go public and they're too big to just get, you know, a couple of bank loans. Uh, usually you have uh, essentially private equity type investments where, where one of these firms will come in and will invest some money, uh, either getting stock or possibly even equity, possibly uh, some board seats, things like that, and help shape the direction of these companies. This is another very uh, interest rate sensitive part of the market. So it's an area that's been a little weak lately, but you can own a company like uh, Main Street Capital Investment, ticker MAIN, or Prospect Capital, ticker PSEC. Uh, to get some exposure uh, with some pretty high-yielding uh, investments right now. What kind of yields can you expect on BDCs? These are pretty close to double-digit right now, uh, thanks to the sell-off uh, in this BDC space that we've seen over the past few months. So I, I definitely li like that as a place to invest. Uh, both these companies have uh, monthly uh, dividend payouts, which is a, another nice, nice plus here. Another strategy you talk about is investing outside the U.S. dollar. Uh, companies with, uh, or even just playing a pure currency in the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the euro, what are the pros and cons of doing something like that to get income? Right. Well, right now, the U.S. dollar is strengthening, so this isn't necessarily an area you'd want to do right now. But most U.S. investors suffer from what's known as home bias. We invest too much of our own money in the U.S., which is only half the world's market. We're missing out on the other half. Uh, right now, that's not really a problem, but going forward over time, it's going to be a problem. You're going to miss out on a lot of other, other opportunities. And right now, uh, with the currencies, what you really want to look for are countries that have a higher interest rate. That's where you want to invest your money. You're going to get a better return on your money there. And yeah, U.S. interest rates are, are this zero-bound interest range. So being able to get uh, you know, even you know, 3 or 4% uh, return on your cash, uh, all things considered, is pretty good. You end your book, uh, High Income Guide, with how to earn an extra 20% annually. How do people do that? Uh, it's going to be with a combination of things. It's going to be with the use of options for the most part. Like I've said, if you own an individual stock, you think, hey, it's had a good run, but it's probably going to go higher, but it might be a while. You're going to want to sell covered calls. Another area I like is actually selling cash-secured put options uh, to potentially enter into new positions. This is one where you're essentially making the bet that, hey, if the, I like this company, I like it at this price. If it goes down to this price, I'll buy shares. And you're getting paid to take that risk. So it's a lot like writing a little insurance policy. And the person on the other side of the trade, they think the stock's going down, so they're buying the put. So you're you know, kind of giving them you know, what they want to have too. So. But in many cases, it doesn't happen, and you just get to keep the premium from the put. And you just do it, keep rolling it that way because it, it expires worthless. Exactly. And we've had some positions in the brain trust where the underlying stock might have dropped a little bit, but it didn't drop below our strike price. So we could roll it down even a little lower and sort of take advantage of that. Uh, we recently did that with uh, the chip maker Qualcomm, for example. But if you sell out of the money put options and you give yourself, I think, six to nine months, uh, gives you a lot of time to work through any short-term problems. If the company has been you know, out there and they've had some bad news lately and the market really doesn't like the company, you're going to get you know, a very good option premium surging on that that you can sell. And then ideally, you keep all the cash. So it, it has to drop a lot quickly for you to actually be exercised on that. And that well, doesn't, get a, doesn't tend get to happen, a, you're saying. Right, exactly. And I mean, I've probably 
done this a few hundred times now at this point, and I would say one out of every 20 trades, uh, I either have to make the decision to get put or sort of roll it down and, and you know, kind of hope for the best. But the so. rest of the time, you're just receiving the premium and you can run off with it, basically. Exactly. It just expires at zero, and, you know, if the stock hasn't gone anywhere and there's still good premium, I can sell it on the same stock or a new opportunity might have emerged, so I, I do have the, the choice to, to do that again. Very good. We're going to take a break, and after the break, we're going to come back and talk about your other book, which is called The Insider's Dossier. I'm speaking with Andrew Packer. He's the editor of the Financial Brain Trust with Newsmax Finance. He's also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter. We'll talk about that more in the next segment, and a contributor to the Financial Intelligence Report newsletter. You can find out more about him at the website fbtalliance.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Packer. He is the editor of the Financial Brain Trust newsletter with Newsmax Finance and also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter. Uh, You can find out more at fbtalliance.com. And he did a book called The Insider's Dossier, How to Use Legal Insider Trading to Make Big Stock Market Profits. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with the basic idea. What is the insider edge that you can get as an investor by following what insiders are doing? Well, corporate insiders, uh, they spend you know, 40 to you know, however many hours a week working at their own company and, and thinking about you know, what's going on there and how they're looking in the competitive landscape and that sort of thing. So when they take their own money and they go to the open stock market and they buy shares of their own company, as insiders, they have to file what's known as Form 4 with the SEC. Uh, But it's also a very good indicator that that stock's going to outperform the market average within the next year. Do some investors, insiders, uh, are too optimistic about their own companies? And 
I mean, kind of what is the track record long term of insider buying showing outperformance versus underperformance? Uh, I mean, yeah, some some insiders are going to buy stock and, and it looks like it's going to be a winner and, you know, it doesn't always happen. Uh, but other times you might have an insider buy stock and then it goes up 30, 40, 50 percent within a year. It's somewhat hard to time these things or know exactly in advance what it's going to do. So if you buy a basket of that, uh, what the statistics tell us over time is you're going to still be beating the market by a fair number of percentage points every year, uh, usually five to six, somewhere in there. So it's a good spot to be in as long as you follow the insiders. Now, within the insider space, I like to find big buys from the CEO and the CFO. That's more important to me than maybe a member of the board of directors or, you know, if you have maybe uh, an executive vice president, uh, you know, it makes more uh, sense when the big guys are buying. Now, there typically is a lag between when they actually do their buying and when it's reported. How long is that lag, and does that make a difference, or is it, these are long-term trends anyway? Uh, it's only a few days. So if I'm looking at, at insider data and I'm looking at a trade that maybe was made a week ago and I come back and I look at it you know, in two or three weeks, uh, sometimes the stock's down from, from where they bought it. Uh, we just entered a trade last week on Apple. Uh, one of the directors had bought shares uh, right after earnings and the company had continued to slide. Uh, and that insider was down about 7% from where they bought shares uh, than when we entered into an options trade to profit from that. What is the difference between legal and illegal insider trading? Well, all the uh, Form 4 uh, filings are, are legal trades. It's, we've you know, bought on the open market. We're disclosing this to the SEC right away. Uh, the illegal trades are the ones that you actually can't track with the Form 4. So the illegal trades might be, the, hey, I secretly owned my stock for, you know, in my brother's name and I sold it and, you know, nobody really knows. It's really just the, the, the opaque, it's, it's what's out there, it's what people can track uh, that I'm, I'm following and, and using as a basis for my research. So there's been an awful lot of SEC prosecutions of insider trading, very high uh, profile things like uh, Raj Rajaratnam and Martha Stewart and so on. Do you think there's more or less insider trading going on these days, considering the SEC is so vigilant? I, I think most of it, uh, if not you know, nearly all of it, is above board. I mean, these are really just a, a very small handful of, of cases from what we're hearing here. I mean, there are hundreds of insider trades across thousands of publicly traded companies every week. So you're really just seeing you know, a very you know, minute fraction of 1% of all cases where the SEC comes out and says, hey, you know, what you did was illegal, you know, you traded on, on inside information. Uh, when insiders are buying, when they're filing their Form 4s, uh, they're essentially only limited to the, you know, public knowledge that's out there. So even if you have an inclination that, you know, your company's shares are going to go up because you think it's undervalued rel relative to the competitors, you know, you're in the clear. If you think, hey, you know, I know that we're going to be cleared on this big lawsuit that's been, you know, hanging over the company for the past few months, uh, that would probably be, you know, in the insider trading area where the SEC would, would crack down on you. Yeah. So over the long term, Everything else being equal, what kind of higher returns do you get by following insiders than just an index? Well, we're just looking to sort of beat the index on an annual basis by, by a few percentage points. Over time, that's going to add up pretty well. It's a lot like you know, just compounding from owning dividends in that respect. Uh, as an example, we just closed out uh, 
Herbalife, uh, ticker HLF. Uh, very controversial stock. You've probably talked about it on your show a fair amount of times. Uh, about a year ago, insiders were buying shares in the mid-50s. This is a company that, that dropped down this year into the early 30s and it was saying, hey, you know, let's, let's buy shares and do that. And then we just closed it out this year and we had a gain that was uh, you know, about five times bigger than the overall market over the same period of time. So. And so the insider was a big reason you were you were buying that, right? It was watching what the insiders were doing, and they were they were buying in the in the mid fifties. And you know, this is a company that's been surrounded with controversy and, and some big high profile short sellers and and all that. So it was just a function of let's look beyond the noise, let's look at the fundamentals, let's look at what the insiders are doing. They have this vote of confidence. If the short sellers are you know right in their thesis that the company's you know this fraud and it should be shut down, the insiders would be selling, not buying. So it was a, a function where following with the insiders, you know, we did very well relative to the overall market. Uh, it was not an easy position to sit in because it, it just had so much volatility on a daily basis. But, you know, that's an example of how that pays off over time. Now, there's an overall ratio of insider buying to selling. Explain how that works and where does that stand these days? Right. If you look at all the Form 4 data, you can see where insiders aren't just buying, but where they're exercising stock options and where they're selling off their existing shares. And usually the ratio is skewed in favor of the sellers. I don't necessarily think that's a problem. I think if you're a corporate executive uh, in America today, most of your compensation, or at least a fair chunk of it, is going to be in the form of options. Some of it just for meeting certain stock price obligations, some of it uh, in lieu of getting uh, a higher pay, which has a higher tax rate than than what you get, um, you know, on your on your stock option trades. So, you know, in that sense, uh, insider selling as a whole often just overwhelms the amount of insider buying out there. Uh, it's not necessarily a problem unless I see a lot of insiders at the same company selling a lot of shares at the same time. Otherwise, for the most part, I think it's just a, a normal market function for corporate insiders to just gradually sell off shares and. You know, if they want to raise cash and, and buy some different stocks with it, you know, good for them. They should be running diversified portfolios. If they want to take a vacation, buy a second home, you know, same, same thing. It's, it's part of their compensation and what they do with it at that point is their own business. But where do things stand now as far as the ratio of insider buyers to sellers? Is it on the high end or the low end? What are insiders doing in general these days? Uh, it's on a pretty high end, and I mean, as we saw kind of the Dow get to 18,000 sort of before the pullback, um, we just saw a fair number of insiders uh, just overall taking profits. And, you know, if you've been in investing in your own company for the past few years and you're thinking, wow, you know, we've, we've really, you know, run up in terms of share price, I should take some money off the table here, uh, it kind of makes sense. And in terms of the insider uh, selling to buying ratio, it's something like, in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 to one. I mean, there is just a huge amount of insiders selling out there. So finding those, those insider buys are a lot rare, but, uh, you know, they, they occur fairly often at individual companies. So not too worried about that. Very good. Well, you've given us some very good ideas. Uh, my guest this hour has been Andrew Packer. Uh, he is the editor of the Financial Brain Trust newsletter with Newsmax Financial. Website for that, fbtalliance.com. Uh, he's also the editor of the Insider Hotline newsletter, talking about what we were just uh, referring to there. And he's done a book on this called The Insider's Dossier, which you can find out about at humanics.com. We also spoke about his other book called The High Income Guide. You've given us a lot of very good ideas to think about, Andrew. So thanks for being on The Money Answer Show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Take care. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.